The University of Connecticut is a pioneering body of research and innovation. This podcast brings you the stories, the motivations, the passions possessed by the people behind this success. Welcome to UConn in Vivo. Today, we are in Webster, Texas, and had the honor of interviewing Dr. Franklin Chang Diaz, a UConn alumnus and former NASA astronaut who is the first Latino in space, logging over 1,600 hours of space time and shares the record for the most space walks. Currently, he is the CEO of Ad Astra, a company pioneering plasma propulsion technology to increase the speed and efficiency of deep space travel. This conversation is the inspiring and incredible story of his life. You know, go back. Yeah, I'm sure it would look totally different. They've done so much change. Yeah, yeah a lot of things have changed since I was there. You know, that was uh, back in the 70s, right. early. You know, you guys hadn't been born yet. Yeah. <laughs> it's a very different uh, university. It was very different. Mm-hmm. They're actually renovating the physics building. I wonder if that mm-hmm. building was. Uh, the material, it was called the Institute for Material Science. IMS. Yeah, IMS. they still have yeah. it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think there's a second in the corner. It was, a, you know, it was brand new. Mm-hmm. When they built it, I was a sophomore, and I worked there. Uh, I was working in the, in the old physics building, which was right, uh, right, right across from, uh, I guess, Swan Lake. Yeah, oh, yeah. 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 <laughs> it was physics and chemistry was mm-hmm. all together. Still in that same general physics area. and chemistry. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And now they've built. So they just recently built the new engineering science building state-of-the-art equipment and labs and stuff, an open concept facility for the really? cell biology department. Wow. But they followed it up with renovations for the physics department, so they wouldn't, you know, slight anybody with that. <laughs> um, yeah. My first uh, job there was in the physics, it was, again, in the old building, physics and chemistry. It was in the basement. There was a, a laboratory. That's where I met, um, you know, Howard Hayden, who was one of the professors there. Mm-hmm. And I worked with him pretty much uh, my entire college career. Then he moved over to the IMS building. Mm. What research were you doing at the time? They were doing atomic collisions, which I didn't know anything about. (laughs) 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 But but I was a pretty good, um, you know, I was pretty good with my hands, fixing things and, Mm -hmm. you know, pieces of electrical equipment, mechanical equipment, pumps and, you know, Simple stuff, you sure. know. And uh, I started out as an unpaid assistant, sure. <laughs> doing anything that needed to be done, mm-hmm. cleaning the place or changing the oil in the vacuum pumps. There were little reciprocating pumps that uh, they had for the vacuum system, and I learned, you know, to, to do little maintenance jobs. And little by little, I learned more and more. Eventually, got more involved. Mm-hmm. In the, in the design of the um, flanges and vacuum components. And then I took, um, they had a, a, a machine shop. When they moved in the, into the IMS building, they built this really nice machine shop with all the latest. And uh, Dick Mindek was the uh, head machinist, and he used to run and do a course in machine, uh, machine shop. Uh, so I took the course. Mm-hmm. Uh, I already knew how to do, you know, milling and working with the lathe, and I did, you know, I used to know how to do um, welding and stuff like that, but I learned, you know, formally, I took the course, and yeah. it was really nice, and then I got more sophisticated. <laughs> <than when laughs> sure, I was, sure. 
but you had the fundamental skills from this experience. Right, right. So I, you know, little by little, I, you know, I, I, that's where I honed my experimental physics mm -hmm. um, uh, skills in oh, over four years. And even though I was an engineering student, mm -hmm. I really spent most of my time in the physics yeah. laboratory. That's awesome. So kind of mixing, mm -hmm. mixing engineering and physics. So you liked your time at UConn, though? I really liked it, yeah. I thought it was great. It was a really, you know, it's just a tremendous experience of, you know, I couldn't believe how much stuff was there to, to just sink my teeth into. Mm -hmm. I think I would agree with that. everywhere. Yeah. You're the director of your own path there. You know, there's so much opportunity. Yeah. So many different research labs. Yeah. And a tremendous body of faculty and staff to, to help you. Yeah, yeah. There was, um, I was like a child in a candy store, you know. <laughs> and I was just going everywhere. I started working also for a little while with um, Professor um, Steiger. Steiger. He was, uh, he was the, the head of the cyclotron. They actually had a cyclotron. You know, he had brought the cyclotron from Princeton. No, no, from Yale. He had, he had been. I guess he graduated there at Yale, mm -hmm. or he got his PhD at Yale, and he went to UConn and became a professor, physics professor. Um, and he had this uh, cyclotron in, in a building all by itself. It's a little building. Mm -hmm. It was a, a build, little building at the corner of, uh, you know, the main road that goes up. You know where the, the, you know, the, the building, the, the Institute of Material Sciences is like in a corner, right? Yes. Uh, this is where the jungle is, North right? Eagleville? The, yeah, the, North Eagleville. North Eagleville, yeah. Yeah, right. And then the corner here, this, this road mm -hmm. goes up, you know, to the main areas and it goes in front of the student union. Sure. And right on the first street, there was a little corner building. Probably doesn't exist anymore. I don't think it does. And yeah. that's where the cyclotron was. <laughs> The <laughs> jungle's not there either. I've heard of stories well, about jungle. the jungle was not there. It's not there anymore. It's no longer referred to yeah. as the jungle. It's, quiet, right? it's quieted down, yeah. yeah. It's become more civilized. <laughs> <laughs> Did you, I live there. I live there. Yeah. My dad tells funny stories of when he would visit his friends at the jungle mm. and they would have, you know, parties in the hallway and <laughs> it was no rules. There's anarchy up there. <laughs> You know, in the spring, when it was getting a little warm, people were out in, there's a, a quadrangle. I mean, the jungle had the, it was like a, a wedge of uh, buildings, yeah. mm -hmm. all leading to the central building, which was a cafeteria. Mm -hmm. And all that, this is the women's side and the men's side. <laughs> in those days, you know, it was yeah, separate. separation, yeah. And uh, the, sort of the field in between, was a grassy field, and all the students used to go and sun themselves and you know, <laughs> worship the sun yeah, yeah, yeah. in the early in the early spring days. And um, what everybody would do is they would blast their speakers from their, their stereos. Yep. And you could hear all kinds of really rock music. Uh, you know, this was the year of uh, Woodstock. Oh yeah. 1969. Yeah. Just a, just a little while, a little distance away. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, Philip Hayden, you said, was your professor. You're talking about engineering professor. Yeah. Or? So, who was you know your main mentor? You know, who the really cultivated enge engineering. I'm trying to think. Uh, the professor Hilding mm -hmm. Winthrop Hilding. He you know he must have passed away already. 
he was a professor of mechanical engineering, and then it was um, Wendell Davis. He was my first um, professor and also uh, guidance counselor. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know if these people are alive, <laughs> probably not. Uh, let's see, who else was there? Uh, yeah, Bob Jeffers, Robert Jeffers. He was, he was fairly young, so he may still be there. I don't know. Uh, yeah, I'm not Bob, familiar Bob with Bob Jeffers was a professor of mechanical engineering. He was really a great guy, you know, really, a, you know, just a really nice person and a really good teacher, too, you mm -hmm. know, teaching you how do you really do F equals MA. You know? <laughs> <laughs> how, do you, how do you really do the whole differential equations, yeah, yeah. you know, the, the, in all his glory. And uh, Dean McFadden, Peter McFadden, was the Dean of Engineering at the time. And he, he became a good friend as well. So those are sort of mainly engineering. Yeah, you know, I'm going back, you know, this is like, <laughs> you know, 50 years. Right. It's a long yeah. time ago. So uh, I, my memory is not that great and that, that That's far. Right. Also, um, in physics, my big mentor was uh, Professor Howard Hayden. Howard Hayden, Howard, yeah, I said Philip. Howard Hayden was a uh, physics professor, but he was never really my professor. I mean, I never took a course with him. Mm -hmm. But I worked in this lab pretty much uh, my entire college career. Yeah. And then his um, uh, partner was Quentin Kessel, and Quentin Kessel and Howard were doing similar experiments. Quentin went in and brought a Van de Graaff accelerator which he, uh, he, had, he had done a sabbatical, I think he had left MI, uh, he had left Yukon uh, when went to work in the private industry for a while. He was at uh, high voltage engineering up in Route 128 in, in Boston. Mm -hmm. And then he brought this Van de Graaff accelerator, one, one MeV, one million electron volts accelerator, to Yukon and he had, had to put it all together. And this was all being done at the um, Institute for Material Sciences in the new laboratory. Sure. And I got to build the whole thing. You know, I, I, mean, really? I had to build the whole, <laughs> the whole assembly, the whole, uh, you, you know, I had to build a frame of angle iron. It had to be very well built uh, to put all of the uh, apparatus. Mm -hmm. I had to do a lot of machining of flanges and vacuum components, line them up. And I had to um, support the installation of the Van de Graaff. And when the Van de Graaff needed maintenance, I, I needed to do that maintenance as well. So I, I got to work uh, in a lot of these pieces, not by myself alone. You know, obviously the question sure. was, was on top of it. Uh, and other grad students as well. I was just a supporting role. But, but I, I don't know if some of that equipment is still there. Yeah, we'll have to check that out, yeah, see I'm if curious. it's still yeah. <laughs> day and life. Yeah. <laughs> Let's go back a little bit, though. There's so many stories about you. You've done so many interviews, but it always seems to start with when you left Costa Rica to come to the U.S. What was your life like in Costa Rica before you, know, you decided to come to the U.S.? And, and how did your family handle that decision? You know, were they supportive of you to come here? Mm -hmm. you know, how were you as a student in Costa Rica? Because mm -hmm. 
you must have been talented for your family to you know be confident mm. that you'd be successful here. Well, you know, I, I was unusual in that respect. I was not a very good student. I never was, you know, like a brilliant or a student or a gifted student. Mm -hmm. And I was never, you know, like at the top of my class or in the bottom of my class. I, sure. I was never, I was kind of in the middle. I was just a very, a very um, average, you know, very regular kind of guy. I was a good athlete. You know, when I was a teenager, I was more interested in girls, you know, mm -hmm. and, and being uh, popular and doing the right. kind of the fun stuff in the, you know, the, the parties and the music and mm -hmm. a little drinking here and there, you know. <laughs> uh, all the things that you would, you know, you, you do. And so I was not what you would consider a, um, a gifted sort of uh, scientific sure. student. But I was fascinated by science and, and engineering and in space. I mean, space was like the one thing that I always felt somehow was my calling. It was a little inconsistent because my mother would always point out that, you know, if I was going to seek a career in space, I needed to study. <laughs> and yep. I needed to be a better student, you know. And so, yeah, well, you know, yeah, eventually I'll get to that, but sure. uh, you know, right now I'm having too much fun. <laughs> <laughs> You're living but, your life. Yeah, but I, I knew that sooner or later I had to really focus on the uh, on the technology and the science and the mathematics, the physics, and all that. I found that uh, whenever the time came, I could I could handle those subjects. Not that I was super bright or intelligent, but I was good enough. To, mm -hmm to do the work that I wanted to do. And I considered things like physics and math to be, uh, especially math, to be just a, a tool, you know, to, sure. to carry out the things that I wanted to do. The other thing that was important is, you know, when I was growing up, um, it really was the opening of the space age. I mean, space became like everybody's dream. I was not the only one. Uh, the the uh, Sputnik satellite was launched, and the uh, whole space age, you know, people were talking about space, uh, journeys to the moon and to other planets, and <clears throat> we had a lot of um, sort of imaginary heroes from the comic books and from the uh, science fiction books. Star Trek. And Star Trek came later. Oh, yeah, Star Trek came sort of in the in the late 60s, mm -hmm. but we're talking about the, the late 50s mm -hmm. and early 60s, you know, when in those days it was Captain Video and uh, Buck Rogers and <laughs> you know, these kinds of, you know, fictitious persons. But in 59, NASA, uh, well, NASA was created in 58 and Fifty-nine, they selected the first astronauts. You know, these are like really, you know, mm -hmm. real flesh and bone, you know, mm -hmm. individuals who uh, were no longer in the just in the comic books. I mean, they were the, the real people. So we all of a sudden had some real individuals to kind of look up to, and they were uh, heroes instantly. Right. And uh, then um, in 61, uh, Yuri Gagarin, you know, flew 
the first human to fly in space, and he also became an instant hero. And then there was, you know, the Soviet Union, which was a mysterious <laughs> place, you know, and the U.S. And then there was these two sort of superpowers, you know, kind of fighting this this battle for supremacy in, in the sky. But these were real people, uh, Gagarin, and then German Titov came later and, you know, all the cosmonauts and astronauts. I, I had them all in my room. <laughs> I had all these pictures of all these people. And so I, um, you know, I wanted to be a space explorer since I was very little, even before there were astronauts. But I, then I knew that, that there were real people who, who, who I could be like. You know, I, wouldn't, I wanted to be an astronaut, but to me, being an astronaut, was a little different from what maybe the conventional idea of an astronaut. In Costa Rica, you know, the, the, we, we've never had a military force, well, I, I, not in my lifetime. Uh, and so the, 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 the military option was um, not existent. I, I could not conceive of, um, you know, that astronauts had to be military people, but in, they were. Mm -hmm. In those days, they you know they were, they all were, they were all pilots and military pilots. But my mother made it very clear that 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 would not last. That eventually, you know, the astronaut job was more like the job of a scientist. And she convinced me that that really was the path. I think she was just. You know, she, she was trying to get, get me to study. <laughs> <laughs> she was very clever because, uh, yeah, she made it very clear that that I just had to hit those books and I had to learn to, you know, do well. And, and I did. I did quite well. Uh, in the last couple of years of high school in Costa Rica, I did very well. Mm. Got my act together. Now, I wrote a letter to, uh, to NASA just before I graduated from high school, uh, because I had seen a brochure from NASA, which had the picture of Werner von Braun, mm -hmm. who was another hero to us, you know, to me. Uh, I mean, this is a rocket scientist, you know, <laughs> this is really more like yeah. what I what really wanted. I couldn't distinguish between being a rocket scientist and, and being an astronaut. I thought they were all the same. They were both the same. And I, to me, they were, they still are. They, you know, I still, you know, this is yeah. what, I, what I ended up turning into. And um, so I saw this brochure and it said, should you be a rocket scientist? Yeah, of course, <laughs> you know. And if you are interested, you know, write to this. But this brochure was for Americans. Mm -hmm. It was for uh, the U.S. consumption. It just came to my hands. Like somebody gave it to me. And so, of course, I wrote. And I got a letter back from NASA. Uh, you know, it's commendable what you're, you know, we you know, encourage you to study, blah, 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 and all those. It's a form letter. Sure. But it said in it that careers with NASA were... Uh, restricted to U.S. citizens only. And what I always say is that I misunderstood that. To think that what they were trying to tell me was, you know, you're barred from this. But what I mis 
What I understood that they were trying to tell me is, come to the United States, become a citizen, and then you get a job. <laughs> <laughs> so it just, I just kind of maybe in my own, you know, twisted way of making my own reality, I, I decided that this is what I needed to do, and this, is, this letter was proof that if I did it, then, then I would get a job, and that I would get entry into the, to the field. So um, I graduated in 67 from high school in Costa Rica. And of course, my family didn't have any means to send me to the United States. And I certainly didn't have the grades because of my average of the previous years that didn't give me a good you know, option to get a, a scholarship. Um, so I really didn't have a way to, to come to the United States. I figured that I would just save enough money and just go, you know. I mean, uh, just go, mm -hmm. right? Um, and so I went to work in a bank. I worked in a, uh, the National Bank of Costa Rica. My uncle was the auditor for that bank and he, I maybe pulled some strings or something and the, they got me a, an interview and I got a job and I went to work in the bank. I worked there for a year. My job was to basically change uh, local currency into, into dollars. <laughs> I knew the exchange rate pretty well every day. Um, that was my, my job. Eventually I did more other things, but in the course of that year, you know, I became financially independent of my family. I had to help in the family support. I lived at home, but I, you know, I paid my, my sustenance, mm -hmm. uh, supported, helped support myself, and I became sort of more independent and saved uh, $50 in a savings account that I opened in the bank. And then at the end, towards the end of 68, um, well, in the summer of 68, I found a family of uh, distant relatives of ours in Connecticut, right. in the city of Hartford. So you were unaware previously that they lived there? I knew that they lived there, but I had not somehow tied the two, pieces, the two things together. Sure. And my grandmother was visiting them. And, you know, she was telling them that, you know, I was wishing to come to the United States to be, you know, to realize my dreams and so all that. And <clears throat> somehow she talked to them and they said, well, we'll be happy to, uh, you know, to welcome uh, Franklin in our home and, uh, you know, get him sort of channeled into some, some way uh, to see what he can do. And that was my ticket. You know, I um, got my dad to uh, buy me a plane ticket, and he did. He got me a one-way ticket, <laughs> one ticket to the U.S. And in those days, if you had a family who would be willing to, to take you in, you could get a visa. Okay. It was not as difficult as it is today. Sure. And so um, they did, they filled out all the papers, I got my visa, we didn't have to have a, a, a return ticket either. I think we did, but my dad must have done something with the U.S. Embassy, <laughs> he must have 
he had some some friends there, and he must have gotten some way of um, waiving the requirement of having the the return ticket. He told me that he he really would would give me the return ticket, but he actually was withholding that ticket because he felt that if I had the return ticket, that would make it too easy for me to come back. And he had been an immigrant himself when he was young. He went to Venezuela, and he said uh, it's going to be really hard at first and you're going to have to struggle and you are not going to want to stay mm -hmm. and I don't want you to give up so easily and he was right and he was speaking from experience yeah at this point knew, knowing already what you were going to be going through that's right yeah he was speaking from experience and he was right if I had had that return ticket, I would have used it, I would have come back. I what would was so it. difficult? You know, there's a point in time when you go to a foreign country, if you don't speak the language and you don't have any money and the, you, know, you don't have anybody there who's really close to you, uh, you feel completely, you know, isolated, alone, mm -hmm. you know, and, and you don't have any money, you, you can't buy anything, you're hungry. Uh, you feel like you're, um, you know, you're in some somebody's house, but I mean, there's too many people there, and yeah. you're just one mouth more. more it doesn't feel feet. like home. It's terrible. It's terrible, and it's just you, you know, you get very depressed. And I remember that um, the worst time was the winter. I had never been so cold in my life because I had never seen snow. Yeah, I had no idea how oh, shock. cold how cold it really could get. And I lived in this uh, house um, in Hartford. It was, uh, it was really an apartment on top of a, it was a third story in a very old building, right next to Trinity College. I don't know mm -hmm. if you're familiar yeah. with, uh, yeah. right at the corner. I think that probably that, that building doesn't exist anymore. It was one of the really, really old buildings. Mm -hmm. And um, I lived there with like 10 people. You know? oh, wow. It was a very tiny place. And, we all kind of slept in there's a room with lots of beds and you know I had my own like a little cot that I slept in in there with um, and you know th these people were just wonderful people they were extraordinarily you know warm and, and open to welcome me even though you know I, I, I am a cousin but a distant cousin right. you know, we don't have a lot of relationship you know regardless of that they they opened their home to me, and I, I, I tell you, I just, I cannot, you know, thank them enough, because that was what opened the, the gate for mm -hmm. me to come to the U.S. Uh, and you'd think that, you know, a family of, uh, you know, means and wealth, they didn't have any of that. They were, they were relatively, you know, poor, yet they... They did it. Um, did that motivate you to work harder? Like you owed them yeah, your I, own I, success? Yeah, I wanted to make sure that they, you know, their, their sacrifice, that, that I could show them that they did not make the sacrifice for nothing. Right. And, um, and so, yeah, so I did. So what I ended up doing is that uh, I was able to work because I was a, a I had a student visa, but I, students can work, for, you know, part-time. I, I could have part-time jobs. And I took a part-time job in uh, Hartford Public Library. 
Yeah, and then the the, the, um, the North End branch, which is in the North End of Hartford, which is a really really rough <laughs> neighborhood. I know. Are you guys from Hartford? You, you, no, but I've been from Connecticut, yeah, so yeah, we know. Yeah, you're familiar yeah. with it. And the North End is, you know. Um, it's mostly black and Puerto Rican Latinos and and the reason they gave me the job I think is because I spoke Spanish and I have to tell you that I learned a lot of English from that job from that job because I was um, my uh, my job in the in the public library was a little bit it was just a branch of the public library the main library was downtown in Hartford this was a little branch and what happened there was that a lot of the, the uh, Hispanic uh, kids, the, the little kids, like, you know, five-year-olds or, you know, six-year-olds, they would be sent there because the mothers maybe had to work or something. And they would be very rowdy, you know, in the, in the children's area. Mm-hmm. And they would be looking at the books. And the books, uh, you know, all the, the children's books were there. Uh, and they would be looking at the, the books, and the books are, of course, in English. Right. And I would ask the kids in Spanish, you know, do you understand what this book says? <laughs> said, no. <laughs> I have no idea what this book But I'm, I just like the pictures, you know. Yeah. I say, well, you're just looking at the pictures. And I said, I, said, I could, you know, I could uh, translate it for you. And uh, that's how I picked up a lot of English. I was translating children's books oh, to the little kids translating um, the English of the, the story, the, I already knew the stories, mm-hmm. into uh, Spanish for the I little see, kids. And that quieted down, them down. And so the librarian was very impressed that I was able to get the kids to shut up and <laughs> be quiet. <laughs> so my job, which was initially, was you know, mostly dusting and arranging the books. Um, ended up being more like a, you know, kind of like a, a counselor or something, or working with the kids. Mm-hmm. And I also um, helped uh, older kids who came to do their homework uh, in, um, you know, physics and math. I was able to, you know, help them with their homework. So I did a lot of that stuff, and I, um, that's what I did at the library. So anyway, spent a year, when I uh, started at Hartford, I, I, um, I went to um, Hartford High, and, uh, and that was in the fall of uh, 1968, and they right away put me in the English orientation program, mm-hmm. and you know, I went to a few classes. And I thought, I mean, this is not going to work. Because all the kids around me, was spoke, they, they all spoke Spanish. And there was a lot of people were talking, and, and, you know, but I could, all I could hear was Spanish in the, in the, in the English orientation program. The, the, the teacher was the only one who spoke English. And he was, um, I think his last name was uh, Kiritsis. He is uh, Greek-American. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he spoke very good English, of, of course, uh, at least I could tell. Um, but, you know, he didn't say very much, and most of the, the spoken language was Spanish. So, 
uh, they told me that I was going to be there for a year and then I was going to go and be evaluated and they may choose to put me in the junior or the senior class depending on what they, they thought. And, you know, I had already graduated from high school and it was like I was going backwards, you know. So, um, so I uh, was able to convince through interpreters and stuff to the uh, school administrators, uh, you know, the principal and the vice principal and all those people to let me enter the, the regular senior class with the aim to graduate um, and I was going to take a full load of courses that I wanted them to you know, review my record in Costa Rica and see what credits I could get mm-hmm. and whatever I couldn't get that I would take the courses and I would graduate and if I didn't make the, the, uh, the grade that they could send me back to the English orientation program and we, you know, it's like nothing you know let me try this, and right. if it doesn't work, then they can do their stuff. And they said yes, and they put me in the senior class. I took American history, I took uh, English literature, and I took a course in uh, in what was called senior math, which was more like it was a, a, a course for, for college, it's a college level course for uh, basic principles of calculus. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I took a course in engineering design. And I wanted, there was another course that, that before I took this engineering design, I wanted to, there was another course that was offered, which, um, which was called Home Economics. And I thought that this was like about economics, because you know? <laughs> I, I never heard of that. So I, I, I want to take that, because yeah. I want to learn about economics, I want to learn about you know, finance and, and so on. And I, I got advice by my, my cousin, uh, Miriam. She said, listen, this is not about economics. <laughs> <laughs> if you go there, this is all, it's all about, you know, Meeting girls, I guess it's sure, all sure. about. But uh, this is not the course for you. So uh, that was one of my first um, realizations of, of what what gets lost in the translation. Anyway, I took the engineering drafting course, uh, which turned out to be a lot of fun. So uh, I entered the senior class, and um, I did really bad, you know. The, I couldn't understand anything that they right. were saying, and, uh, and early the early markings were failings. And but over time, the the grades began to improve, and I think towards the end, I was I was very close to you know straight A's. I mean, I was doing very well. This was related to the language barrier, you yeah. think? Yeah. Like over time, as you got better at English, I, as I, I got, I got, I learned the language yeah. little mm-hmm. by little. I, I also had that there was a teacher there that uh, became my friend and a very influential uh, person, Alan Winters. Alan Winters uh, was a, he was a substitute teacher, uh, and he was there because he was trying to avoid the draft. 
you know. <laughs> mm-hmm. He had graduated from Trinity College, and he was a philosophy major. He was super smart, you know, really smart guy. And he had a couple of the, uh, at least he had one of the study hall periods that I had to go to. And we became friends, you know. I asked him once, you know, why did you become interested in me? And he said, the reason I became interested in you is because you were the only one who studied during study hall. (laughs) (laughs) And everybody else was either, you know, talking or sleeping. Mm -hmm. And you were the only one who was studying. And the other thing is that you always were, um, you always wore a tie and were all dressed up. And that's something that I had learned in Costa Rica, because we had to wear uniforms when I was in high school there. But because I was working in a bank, and you know, my family just always impressed upon me that I had to be well-dressed. So um, I went to school every single day with a coat and a tie. Oh, wow. And people, <laughs> you know, uh, I mean, I, would, I didn't have very much. I mean, I had one coat, sure. I had maybe two or three shirts. I had to wash them and iron them every every night, and um, and I would you know polish my shoes and I would clean myself up pretty well. And um, so I was always all dressed up. And uh, in those days, also when I came um, from the bank, and I used to smoke um, a pipe. And, uh, you know, that, that was just, just a habit mm-hmm. I picked up in the bank and uh, in Costa Rica. When I came, uh, you know, I was in school and I was at the, you know, bus stop. I would be smoking my pipe and then I would become walking from the, uh, the bus stop to the school with all the students. I'd be smoking my pipe and, you know, there's nothing to it, yeah. you know. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and just before I would enter the school, I would just empty the pipe right there in the, in the, in the grass, and I put it in my pocket. And the students thought I was one of the teachers. <laughs> yeah, this is a mature look. Yeah. A suit, a pipe. Yeah. Yeah. It's <laughs> Many students would always say, good morning, sir. <laughs> Did you tell them? No, no, I'm a student. No, no, I just say you embraced it. Of course, it was kind very of fun. polite. Kid. It was kind of fun. It was it was fun, but um, but Alan Winters really pushed me to um, to learn English. But the you know really learn really good English because he said you have to take the SAT because I wasn't going to enter uh, the university as a foreign student. I was just going to enter like a mm-hmm. Connecticut student. And so he started giving me personal crash courses in English. He made me read all these really complicated books. first book, I still have it in my home, that he gave me to read was a big, big, fat book, which was called A History of Western Philosophy by uh, Bertrand Russell. And I had to read, <laughs> couldn't understand that word. And we yeah. had to, and he would, uh, you know, question me on, on what I was reading and asking me questions, you know. So I learned English, you know, very quickly because of that. And at a high level. At a high level. 
And um, he and uh, all the, the teachers in the school, they, they saw that I was doing well. Uh, Mrs. Price was uh, my English uh, literature teacher at uh, Hartford High. Uh, she was really a nice, nice lady. She wanted me to write uh, essays, and she just says, hey, just write anything you want, just write about anything. And so I would give her essays, and she would correct them. Yeah. And uh, Professor um, Aliano was his name. He was my uh, American history teacher. He was a, a guy that was always all dressed up. That's another thing that I noticed about this professor. And uh, we used to get into discussions about American history because I was telling him when we were studying the years prior to the American Revolution, and uh, to, to the Civil War, Civil War, about the incursions of the United States uh, southern states in the Central American areas. Uh, most people in, in the U.S. don't learn about that history. They don't know who William Walker was. William Walker was a mercenary who was funded by the Confederacy to take over the countries of, of Central America, turn them into uh, U.S. southern states so that they could have majority majority in Congress and they, you know could have prevented the Civil War mm -hmm. you, you never know um, and of course it, it was an armed uh, incursion and uh, there was a big war that took place big war to go to you know to Central American standards <laughs> no not to, not to the US standards it, it was um, a war and these people were called the filibusters nowadays filibusters in um, in Congress, are, yeah. has a different connotation. A right, yeah. But in, in Costa Rica, filibusters means these uh, mercenary soldiers who came. And of course, they failed, and they, they didn't fail because of, you know, better armies in, in Central America. They failed because of cholera. They got um, hit by. Uh, epidemic of cholera and it decimated the, the forces and that's one of the reasons, main reasons they failed. But anyway, this whole part of American history doesn't come to, you know, to the students mm -hmm. of American history in the U.S. And I used to uh, explain to my class, you know, during, because, uh, you know, Mr. Aliano, who was the, who was the teacher, he, he would let me talk to the students, to the class about oh, wow. uh, the Sparta history. And uh, it was kind of nice, uh, you know, <laughs> giving them a little bit of a history perspective from a different angle. Um, anyway, so my year at Hartford High was full of, um, you know, enriching experiences and knowing uh, Alan Winters really helped a lot. And um, when it got time to get close to you know, choosing what you're going to do after high school, I was sent to my guidance counselor, Mr. Levine. I remember Mr. Levine. And he wanted to know what I wanted to do. And I said, well, I, you know, I want to be a rocket scientist. I want to go into space. And you know, and he just kind of um, didn't believe any of that. <laughs> he just <laughs> what he really want to do. Or something. <laughs> and, uh, you know, you're gonna, obviously going to be a technical 
you're interested in a technical career. So he got me a bunch of brochures of institutions that I could go after high school. And they were all junior colleges. He, he never pulled any of the brochures from the universities. Mm -hmm. It made the, maybe the mental assumption that perhaps because I was Hispanic, that, you know, that, or that I didn't speak English very well, that I was not going to do well in a, in a university, in a four-year college. So he said, here are some, I think it was Hartford Technical School was one of them. Anyway, beautiful brochures, and I, I didn't know the difference at the time. I didn't know that there were colleges that were four years, and there were colleges that were two years, and I didn't know that difference. So I went and showed that, uh, those brochures to Alan Winters. He said, no, this is not what you are going to go for. You're going to go to a university. And so he took all that, told me, throw that, that away, and he... Um, started working with me to fill out applications to uh, the University of Connecticut right. and to other schools. I think I applied to three schools, the University of Connecticut, University of Hartford, and Trinity College. And I got rejected from Trinity College. I don't know whatever happened with the University of Hartford. <laughs> I never heard any, anything. But I got a, a scholarship from the University of Connecticut. Full scholarship. Full? Yeah, full wow. scholarship. Uh, I was interviewed in high school by two individuals who came, who were searching for promising students from sort of disadvantaged, um, you know, ethnic groups, Hispanics, I guess, blacks. Uh, I guess I fitted the, the mold. So these two people, uh, one was, um, Carolyn McDoo, and the other one was uh, Clarence Williams, and they somehow they were touring all the schools, all the high schools in, in Connecticut. They, they were going to pick, I don't know, 12 or 15 students, so promising, and they were going to get a full scholarship. And uh, they picked me uh, at Hartford High, and maybe another guy, there was another guy too. Uh, and I went to this interview, uh, I was just sitting in class and somebody said, you've been requested or you've been summoned to, this, to go meet with these people and I didn't know anything about it. So I you know, picked up all my books, I had a whole bunch of books which I carried <laughs> with me. I had books in orbital mechanics, you know, um, rocket propulsion, um, the U.S. space program, you know, I had all these books that I was reading because now I could read English, so mm -hmm. I, could, I could read all that. And so I hauled all my books over to this interview, and they said, whoa, <laughs> is that what you're studying? <laughs> and um, Carolyn wanted, you know, she asked me, what, what are your goals? And, and uh, I oftentimes, I had gotten burned so many times that when I told people that I wanted to be an astronaut, you know, that I wanted to go into space, that I oftentimes um, withheld that information. I just said, you know, I want to be an engineer, I want to be something, you know, because I, I just felt that if I told the truth, that people would not believe me. And fortunately, this time I 
told the truth, and I told Carolyn uh, and Clarence that uh, I wanted to, uh, you know, I wanted to be an astronaut, and that I had come to the U.S. to do that, and that this, you know, I'm preparing myself for this, and you know, I want to go to the university. I want to be be a scientist, and this is all in my path. And they were very impressed with this. So they recommended me for the scholarship. And I think that that was another break mm -hmm. for me. Yeah. If I had not told the truth, yeah. I think they would, they would not... Um, they might have picked you. They would not have... They might have similarly positioned you to yeah. a technical career. Right, like so something else, counseling. yeah. That's right, exactly. So I'm glad I told the truth. And um, they, um, they gave me the scholarship. And when I received the uh, letter from uh, UConn telling me that I had gotten in and that I was going to be an engineering student and I had this full scholarship, I just, I just couldn't believe myself, you know. <laughs> this whole dream of coming to the United States and, you know, realizing that, I mean, it had just like materialized, just like... It's almost the first validation that yeah. what you were doing was right. You know, yeah. you were working hard, you were studying, and yeah. here's your first moment of yeah. achievement and accomplishment. Yeah, okay, but not so fast. Um, I go to the university, you know, I pack my bags, you know, the, the, the end of the school happened, you know, that I ended up going to this program. My um, letter said that I was going to enter the university as a full-time student in engineering with a full scholarship, they also wanted me to come early to a summer program, which was going to be a program to prepare myself, along with all these other students, for entering the full you know, freshman class. And this was a, an intensive program in reading, uh, reading comprehension, uh, math, uh, and mostly reading and math. Because, you know, when you hit the ground as a freshman, you know, you have to really, really hit the ground running. Because, and a lot of the students, including me, certainly because the language, needed help. So I was excited, and so I entered uh, the university in the summer, not in the fall. So when I got there, they said, um, we can't accept you. We've made a mistake. Your grades are great. Mm -hmm. Your academics are great. You are a perfect student for this. But we thought that you were Puerto Rican and not Costa Rican. No. <laughs> we, we couldn't tell the difference. We made a mistake. Somebody made a mistake. Why does that matter? They just they wanted to fill some No, no, because... This scholarship was a state scholarship, um, and Puerto Ricans are U.S. citizens. Right. Costa Ricans are not. Right. And whoever made that, uh, you know, filled out that, did not know Didn't the difference. Yeah. So well, you know, it was like a, like a bucket of cold water, mm -hmm. and I thought, oh man, I have nothing, you know. Mm -hmm. And they were just, I was just going to have to be, leave. So 
This all transpired very quickly. Carolyn McDougall was not the one who made the mistake. Uh, somebody probably in the university. And Clarence and Alan Winters and all these people who had helped me somehow managed to um, talk to the university and even, I understand, the state legislature got involved. Wow. And they decided to grant me the scholarship anyway wow. because they had made a mistake. It's remarkable how yeah. much support they were giving you, these yeah. two people, and how really hard they're working to get you. I always, you know, I, I wrote a book um, about my, my years in the United States when I first came, all the stuff that I'm telling you. I, I, I wrote it down, and in that book, I always say, no one gets anywhere without someone else's help. Mm -hmm. This is like the one thing that I've learned in you know, all the years that I've been alive, sure. you know, is that you always get ahead with people's help. Mm -hmm. So you gotta help others because of that. So anyway, um, they decided to give me the scholarship anyway, because they had made a mistake. But the scholarship now, which was a four-year scholarship now, had been uh, reduced to one year. A. It's okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's, okay. <laughs> it's okay. I mean, I mean, you know, I'll figure out what to do yeah. in the second year, but, uh, you know. The other thing that the university did, which was really nice, was that they, uh, in the second, third, and fourth years, they say you only have to pay in-state tuition, which is a huge difference yeah. mm -hmm. from being, you know, a foreign student. I would have to pay huge amounts of money, and I wouldn't be able to do it. So, you know, people helped in the ways that they could help, but in a very effective way. And so, so I, um, you know, did my first uh, year. And then the second and third and fourth, I got loans, and I went. You know, I was working with uh, Howard Hayden and those in the, in the physics department. I worked part time and full time. In the summer, I worked full time. Mm -hmm. In the Christmas holidays, all that full time. And in the um, in, in during the school year, I would work part time. And so I was able to finance the education. And um, I was in debt, but it was, it was okay. Mm. You know, I, I was okay with the, having some debt. I also got married in that mm. time. That time, second year, I married this girl from, she was an American girl. And eventually we got divorced. Uh, but that also created a, an environment of stability, family type, mm -hmm. you know. She was already a college graduate, so she went to work. Mm -hmm. And so we were able to live outside of the uh, uh, dorms. At the, in, and, um, you know, we kind of also both supported each other. Uh, I, I was able to support myself, and she brought in some money also as well. So, so that um, was my, um, my stint at the university. Connecticut. Sure. In 1969, I, I was at the University of Connecticut when Neil Armstrong landed on the moon, and I was able to see the landing on the moon from the university, from the student union, actually. Really? Yeah, I was at the student union, and I was probably the first person to be there. <laughs> Eventually, it was a lot of people there, and I remember, uh, you know, 
Walter Cronkite, the CBS commentator, doing all the commentary. And, you know, he would not fill in all the information, and so I was able to fill in the information. <laughs> I knew it all. For the audience. That was to the cool. audience. And, then, you know, there was a lot of people there, and I would be saying, oh, yeah, they're, they're doing this because of this, and this is, this is why they need to do this, wow. this turnaround. And, uh, and they, they would look at me and say, this kid, you know, with, with an accent, <laughs> he seems to know yeah, a lot who more. Are you, right? <laughs> So that's, that, that was the landing on the moon. And then, uh, <clears throat> in, like in 71, I was like a sophomore. Um, President Nixon canceled the, the, the Apollo program and the whole thing came crashing down. The whole program was defunded and there were thousands of engineers out of work from NASA. Mm -hmm. And my teachers, uh, professors at, at UConn, would tell me, don't even think about going into the space program because sure. you'll never get a job. Were you feeling disheartened at that time? Did you like believe that it really was the end? Or? No, I just thought this is this has got to be temporary. This is probably you know it eventually has to pick up again. Uh, and it's just it's just a matter of time and I knew the space shuttle program had been approved it would be many years later until we would see a space shuttle uh, actually you know finished but uh, I knew that they had been it had been approved but in 1973 which is essentially when I graduated the US got hit with a uh, the whole world got hit with an energy crisis because the petroleum exporting countries withheld the oil and this was uh, caused by a problem between Egypt and Israel they, you know created a huge problem with them in the Middle East and the, the Arab countries all, all ganged up and basically uh, shut the spigot of oil the US was fully dependent on, on the Middle Eastern oil and there were huge lines of people at the gas pumps, you know, trying to get gas for the cars. And also, worse, it was no heating oil. And in Connecticut, you know, you gotta have heating oil in, in the furnaces in the basements. Otherwise, you know, and people were burning wood. It's really, really bad. And so the U.S. opened a crash program in energy research, and there was a lot of interest in fusion and uh, you know nuclear power and man I said this is what I want to do and I'm gonna wait for the space program until this whole thing recovers I'm gonna take a little detour I'm going into nuclear power I know that eventually uh, spaceships are going to need nuclear power and I'm gonna have that ready when, when that uh, happens and so I went into nuclear power, and, and I decided to go to grad school. And, and I applied to MIT, and, and I got in. Mm -hmm. I did not get a scholarship at MIT. I got more loans. And eventually, in my second year at MIT, I did get a scholarship, a research assistantship. And that helped me go through the uh, PhD. And I also, you know, took more loans and... I came out of, of uh, my PhD with a big debt, but I paid it off, so, and I went to work, and uh, sure enough, uh, when I 
finished at MIT uh, in uh, 77, uh, the space shuttle began to do its first uh, approach and landing tests. And of course, I, I, I was just, just about the time that I became a citizen, mm-hmm. a US citizen. And then NASA sends an announcement that it was looking for a new right. group of astronauts for the space shuttle program. Bang, I went up, applied, and I was rejected Ooh. right away. And I, to this day, I don't know what was the reason. I mean, probably just simple, simple numbers. There were thousands of people trying to get the job, and, and you know, there were many people who were just rejected for because just, they're just as qualified, but they're rejected. And so I said, well, I mean, you know, it's got to be other opportunities that are going to come along eventually. So I went to work at Draper Labs in the same group that was developing all of the navigation systems for the spatial program. And man, I was so close to all the space stuff that I could just taste it, you know. Mm -hmm. But I wasn't there. Mm -hmm. And uh, sure enough, in 1980, uh, 79, NASA sent another request for uh, another group, a smaller group of astronauts. And I just took out my, uh, my application from my files, dusted off, updated it with more stuff that I had done, sent it out, and I got an interview. I got called to come here to Houston. And, um, you know, the group had now been narrowed from, you know, 3,500 or something like that to, to 120. So I was already in that smaller group. And um, I came here to the, you know, I'd never been to Houston. I came here to the, you know, the mecca of the space program. Mm-hmm. And when I was on the approach, uh, I said, God, this is really ugly. <laughs> it's all, this is really terrible. Oil refineries yeah. everywhere, and it's just, it just smells, and, uh, you know, it's just like everything looks like it was built, uh, you know, for a just on the road, uh, billboards everywhere. It's not as pretty, uh, you know, as New mm-hmm. England. It's not, yeah. not as, as nice. The weather must have been I mean, a nice change of pace, though. A little bit nice, yeah. Mm-hmm. The weather was nice. People were very nice. Mm-hmm. But, man, it was an ugly place. <laughs> <laughs> but I went through, you know, I went to the Johnson Space Center right here, about three miles from here, and... Um, met the astronauts that I had on my wall, you know, when I actually got to talk to them and eventually uh, interviewed with them. And uh, I couldn't believe it. And then I went back to, uh, to Boston, went back to work, and, and in May of 1980, I got a call from NASA. Uh, the director of uh, flight operations called me to tell me that I had been selected. Uh, it was an interesting moment for me mm-hmm. because I'd, forgot, I'd almost forgotten about the whole thing. You know, I was too deep in the development of this Vassimer engine, you know, the, the, the rocket engine we'd been working on. I, was, I just started you know, thinking about how to do this. And I had sought an audience with a very prominent um, scientist from MIT 
who was the director of the gas turbine laboratory at MIT. His name is uh, Eugene, was Eugene Covert. Uh, and Professor Covert, uh, you know, a very famous man, agreed to see me and to, and to hear, you know, about my proposal, my project. Mm -hmm. In those days, there was no PowerPoint, you know, right. there were no computers, laptops, or anything like that. You had to do it all with view graphs. I don't know if you ever heard of that. They were plastic, oh, yeah, yeah, plastic yeah. little sheets that oh, you would sure. put over a light bulb, um, you know, a, a light table, and it would be projected mm -hmm. onto the screen. But even that was uh, not even available. So I had my, just everything in my notes. I just mm -hmm. had a bunch of papers. Mm -hmm. And I went uh, to see this this man. It was a guy going to visit God, you know. <laughs> you know, his office is you know cavernous, you know, huge office in the central part of the institute. And I sat there, uh, and he was behind this big desk, and I you know I just a little chair with my stuff. <laughs> And uh, we, I, I go and start, you know, start telling him about my project, and um, you know, he's listening to it, and then he gets a phone call, and he picks up the phone and, you know, says something, and then he says, "It's for you." <laughs> <laughs> Who knows that I am here? You know, it is, you know, the, the the phones in those days are not wireless. You know, mm -hmm. they they have a the cord. A cord, you know, kind of coil cord. And um, he gives me the phone, I pick up the phone, and on the other side, on the other end is um, the director of flight operations at NASA Johnson Space Center. <laughs> but I didn't know who he really was because I, I just was not prepared for mm -hmm. this. And he mumbles something, and somehow he says, um, uh, George Abbey, uh, director of flight operations at Johnson Space Center. And, you know, I'm not sure I really, it could really dawn on me who I was talking to. But I wanna uh, tell you, first to congratulate you, you've been selected in the, in this, uh, the next group of astronauts. And uh, we would like to know if, if you would accept the job. <laughs> <laughs> and I, you know, I tell you, right over, I thought this has got to be a prank, you know, <laughs> and MIT guys are, are notorious for that. Mm. They all knew what I wanted to do, and I said, this has got to be some kind of a MIT prank. And I just didn't, didn't pay attention too much. And so he kind of waited for me, and then he insisted, like, you know, we, we, you, you just you've been accepted <laughs> to the astronaut program, and we need to uh, issue a press release, and we need to know if you will accept the job. And then at that point, I realized that, yeah, this is, this is real. <laughs> and I became very nervous. Mm -hmm. And he said, well, you know, you don't have to tell me right now if you accept the job. Um, but we need to know, like within the hour, um, because we need to make the, the announcement. And uh, it would be much better if you just tell me now. <laughs> but, if, but if you can, then here's a number for you to call. And um, 
So I, I didn't have anything to write, and I was sort of standing <laughs> up, so you know, here I am with this phone. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and <clears throat> pacing around with the phone, and, and, and I need to write something down, so I grabbed the paper from the notebook from Professor Covert, you know, right, ripped off a piece of paper. And I took out his, um, his pen from his pocket. From his pocket. And you know, the, the cord from the telephone <laughs> wrapped around his neck. And, uh, and I wrote down a number, but, but then he said, but do you accept the job? And I said, yes, I do right. accept, right. you know. <laughs> Absolutely, positively, I accept. <laughs> I must have said it like you no, know, three or four times, and I, I, you know, I just, I was completely blown away. Yeah. And then I, um, you know, I hung up the phone, uh, and you know, Professor Covert was—he's uh, smiling. You know, I said, you know, I just been selected to be an astronaut. And he said, yeah, I knew, I, I already knew about it. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, the, whatever it is, that be, because it turns out that later I found out that um, Mr. Abbey and Professor uh, Covert, they, they knew each other. Because mm -hmm. so, he, he was a very famous space guy. And George Abbey was the director of the NASA um, flight operations. Mm -hmm. And so they, they all knew about the Apollo program. They all, they, they knew each other. Um, so uh, he said, well, allow me to be the first one to congratulate you. <laughs> and I think your rocket can wait for now. <laughs> so, so they got you with a slight prank. You know, they you had he knew all pent up to give a speech it, with it, him, it, but it he knew of, the whole time. It, it, it. Yeah, it kind of. So yeah, I accepted the job. I, I just, to, you know, to me, it was amazing that I I, I had to say yes to the one thing that I had been pursuing for my entire life. Yeah. I still had to say yes or no. And, and, and the only thing separating me from achieving that dream was my intonation of the word yes. Mm -hmm. And that's it, that was it. And so I did. And you know, I, I went uh, back to uh, my office at the Draper Labs you know, I don't know. I think I, there was a moment when I crossed Main Street um, that I almost got run over by a taxi cab <laughs> in, in Boston because mm -hmm. they're crazy. And I, I, I wasn't paying attention. Mm -hmm. I didn't even know where of I was. Not. And I went to uh, my office, and everybody at Draper Labs already knew. <laughs> and everybody was congratulating me everywhere. And I got to my desk, and I was so nervous. Uh, that somebody gave me a shot of whiskey, I remember. <laughs> I remember. I don't know where they pulled it from, but they, somebody gave me a shot of whiskey, and then I settled down, and, and I, I called my, my family in, in Costa Rica and talked to my dad, and he started crying. And my mom went berserk. I mean, she just <laughs> jumping up and down. So, you know, my, my life changed immediately at that point. It's, it's never been the same. So that's sort of my story. So how many years from when your dad bought you your one-way ticket to the U.S. to when you said yes to NASA? How many years was that? Well, from uh, 60, uh, see, that was 68 until 
1980s, 12, 12 years. years. That's fast. Wow. Yeah. 12 years. So you show up to Houston, to NASA day one, you're, you're now, you know, accepted the position. What is it like to be at the facility? Yeah. It was kind of um, a little bit of a shock for me. I mean, I knew that I was in the pinnacle of the space program. All the astronauts, you know, were there. But I was surprised about, about how antiquated things were. That was one of my first impressions. I got to work in mission control for the, the early uh, shuttle missions. But even before that, the level of technology that I was working with uh, at MIT and at Draper mm -hmm. Labs and working in thermonuclear you know, research, uh, working with you know, these sort of big computers, and what I got to do when I came to NASA was like night and day. I mean, the stuff that people were doing at, at, at NASA was extremely antiquated, very old. A lot of things were done by paper, on paper still. There were no computers in people's offices, uh, which we had in our at Draper Labs. We had computers pretty much everywhere. And they were not really computers, they were terminals, computer terminals that were connected to a mainframe computer, which was in, in the basement of the building. And, but, you know, we all did everything by talking to a computer. And we wrote uh, code, uh, we wrote programs, uh, we, we programmed the computers, and we did a lot of uh, calculations, a lot of work like that. Here at NASA, uh, first thing I had to do was to get checked out in the T-38, uh, the flight, you know, and, and that was a lot of fun. The airplane was fairly easy to learn to fly. I had already flown, uh, become a pilot, uh, a glider pilot at MIT, and I learned to fly small planes. So flying was not sort of a mystery to me. Uh, flying jets was nice, uh, you know, a different thing but it was not as technologically intricate as what I was doing at, at MIT. So I was shocked about that. When I started working on my rocket engine, this was, as soon as I came to, to NASA, I brought all that work that I had started at Draper Labs to NASA, and I was working at Draper with plasma physics computer codes that were resident in the uh, supercomputers at the uh, Magnetic Fusion Energy Computer Center in Livermore in California. And we would communicate with these number crunchers through uh, something called the ARPANET in those days. There was no internet, so we would use the ARPANET. ARPANET was a, a network, a nationwide network, that connected most of the main institutions and national laboratories. And I was used to that, you know, we just transfer files and codes and stuff. When I came to NASA, they had no idea what this was, <laughs> they didn't know. The building that I was in, you know, the phones, uh, still some of the phones were rotary phones. You had to, you know, dial by going like, you know, mm -hmm. disk. And they were just began introducing the push button phones, you know, landlines, of course, no, there's no cellular phones and nothing like that. And first I got permission to bring a computer terminal to my office. 
And it was the first time that, you know, astronauts were seeing a computer terminal in the office. And I managed to find a way to connect my computer terminal through the local telephone lines to some node in downtown Houston, which was controlled by the oil companies, and jump from there to a network called TimeNet, which was a private uh, network of oil, mostly oil companies and other technology companies, and jump from there to the ARPANET to reach the computers and the reason was that I could make a long-distance call sure. directly to Livermore and connect directly, but it was a long-distance call. Mm -hmm. And in those days, a long-distance call would, would cost a lot of money. And even though we were astronauts, we were not allowed to make long-distance calls yeah. without a reason. And, you know, these are calls where I would tie up a line for hours, you know, be working <laughs> on the computer, you know. So, I mean, why would you want to have hours of phone call and that, that was not allowed so I had to make a local call which was unlimited time and the only way I could do it was by doing this trick going through uh, Exxon I think it was Exxon anyway so I now connected my computer terminal which was a very crude you know basic rudimentary computer terminal it was like an oscilloscope yeah. it had a green screen you know <laughs> And um, I was able to bring the programs and the results directly from uh, Livermore. And my fellow astronauts and candidates like me would tell me, Franklin, what are you doing? You know, because I'd be in the office, you know, sure. because, you know, the, the job of the astronaut was not really that, that technical. It was, it, you know, you, you sat in a lot of meetings, you did some training. But most of the time, you know, you, you, you're just learning about the space shuttle, you're learning the systems of the space shuttle. And that was, that was good, that was fun. The space shuttle was very, uh, you know, the computers were very antiquated. Uh, they had already been developed in the 70s, and it was very limited programming. And um, you couldn't do very much except just key in some commands, and that's how the shuttle would work. So working on a rocket engine at the Johnson Space Center was very frowned upon, especially by an astronaut. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's just like they said, you should, you should give up all that science stuff because you're never going to fly if you keep doing that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, again, I, I'm glad I didn't pay attention to that. Right. So um, I discovered a lot of things that were sort of somewhat surprising to me, you know, about the space program that uh, somehow didn't jive with what I had right. thought mm -hmm. I was going to find. You know, over time, over the years, I've discovered that flying in space, of course, is very dangerous, it's unforgiving, so you don't really want to be too much at the edge of technology. Uh, you need to have things that are proven that definitely will work. So you have to be more conservative in your, in your approach to, to technology. Uh, but, you know, over the years we have certainly matured a lot. And we can do a lot more uh, now in space than what we could do back in those days. 
now we have computers. Now we have uh, you know internet. We can do a lot of a lot of stuff. But also the the ethos of astronauts uh, was not quite what I thought. Uh, there was still a lot of that rigid sort of military formality and or, or format. And many of the civilian, the scientists who became astronauts, had to learn to conform to the sort of the military way of life. And, 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 and I, I didn't conform to that. I was a bit of a rebel in that respect. And I didn't um, conform, but at the same time, I did the job that I needed, that sure. needed to be done. Because, because the proof is that I got to fly many times. So I'd love to get into the details of space flight space and flight. what being in space is like. Well, flight in space you know, is, is just a completely different environment of, of a multitude of, of sensations that all come at once. <laughs> from floating, from the sensations of night and day, up and down, you know, the sense of time, the sense of isolation, all of that, all together is that's what space is like and you kind of adjust to this new uh, environment uh, or you don't mm -hmm. and, and some people take longer and some people adjust right away i'm lucky i adjusted very much right away i i felt very comfortable in space and i longed to go back and every time every time yeah. i came back i wanted to go back when I was uh, in flight, I didn't want to come back. I wanted to stay there. I would have liked to go on a long journey, uh, a long duration flight. Uh, it just it didn't happen for me. But I was really busy with the development of the rocket as well, so I was doing both of these things. Uh, so space is like that. Just like nothing you can experience here. You can describe different aspects of it, of course, floating. Okay? Yeah. Floating in space is you know, it's very liberating. You know, the fact that you can go anywhere in the three-dimensionals of your room in any direction at any time is something that you get used to, it, but it's, it's extremely liberating. What was it like doing a spacewalk? Spacewalks are scary, I, I thought, at first. Mm -hmm. But after you get used to being there, right away you start kind of taking it all in. This is all part of your environment. And now you, you, know, you, you start looking at the whole expanse of space and, and the Earth being dominant feature in you know, your visor. You know, the Earth is just a majestic sphere. And at night, uh, star <coughs> stars everywhere. You see lots of stars very crisp um, and you know it's a tremendous sensation of, of, of freedom and, and and a little bit of, of, of isolation yeah. I've read that you've said it's very psychologically difficult that sense of isolation that sense of you know, some people you feel higher yes yes I found um, that um, there was one time when I was on the end of the arm, and um, we went into the dark uh, part of the, of the orbit, and so everything disappeared around me because the Earth was very quiet. There was no storms, no lightning, and uh, no cities because we were probably over the ocean. I think we're in the South Pacific, with no lights. And I could just see stars everywhere. The station was behind me. Mm -hmm. 
I couldn't see very much of it. And it was just stars everywhere. It was very surreal. And it was, you know, a little bit, um, I say, scary, you know, mm -hmm. thinking that uh, they all left. Right. They left me here and that uh, I'm in the middle of, of space and everybody's gone and I'm the only one here. It's scary to yeah. think that. Obviously, it's a crazy thing to think about. And, you know, in your training, you, you learn to focus on what you have to do. You, you control these emotions. But these emotions are part of you know, being human. And I think that you, you need to accept them and right. you need to understand them and be able to, in some cases, uh, even savor them a little bit, let, let you feel them. Uh, we went through the aurora uh, in that particular night pass and I just, I just felt like I was in a surreal place because the aurora, uh, these curtains of light um, that you would see in the northern uh, latitudes, they project outside of the atmosphere. Right. And we flew right through them. And I was right in there, right through these curtains of light. And it was really surreal, almost like a you know, psychedelic trip, some kind of a drug, <laughs> right, you know? Right. Yeah. Wow. So. I want to ask you a little bit about your thoughts on, like, the, the future of space travel. So you have these privatized companies, uh, including your own, but, you know, you have SpaceX, for instance, Elon Musk talking about um, plans in the next few years for travel to Mars. Mm -hmm. And so I just want to get your perspective, like, where are things heading? What's kind of the timeline? And uh, what's the role of, say, the Vassimir rocket you yes. know, in helping us get farther? Yes. Well, the Vassimir rocket is what we want to develop to go fast. Mm -hmm. Right now, we are limited in our ability to travel to all these places in a reasonable amount of time. It takes too long to get to Mars, and Mars is, is the next one up. I mean, it's, you know, Moon, Mars, but then there is, you know, Jupiter, the Saturn, Neptune, and so on. And we want to be able to send humans to these places in short times. We are seeing all the problems of long time exposure to weightlessness and long duration missions just to go to Mars. And so we need to remedy that. And we believe in our company that, that uh, the Vassimer engine will be the means to achieve that. It requires, though, that we embrace nuclear electricity. That is, that we have to develop, to drive the Vassimer engine, which is an electric rocket, we need to have an electric power source, and that is a nuclear reactor. We will use Vassimer for commercial operations in the vicinity of the Earth with solar power. Solar power will be fine. You know, 100, 200, 300 kilowatts. But if you're sending humans to those far places, you need multi-megawatts, and that will not come with solar. That will have to be nuclear. So what is the timeline? Do you think in, this in our generation we'll be able to see? You will. You do? Yeah. yeah, you will. In fact, your generation will be in perfect timing for this. Wow. Because, you see, the Vassimer engine will be ready maybe three years from now. We'll be flying the engine in space. And the way we have it in our company is our game plan is to first uh, work on Vassimer to support commercial operations in the vicinity of the Earth, but then set up 
test facilities on the moon, uh, company test facilities on the moon, to test multi-megawatt rockets there. Mm -hmm. These tests cannot be done on a vacuum chamber here or in orbit. Mm -hmm. They need to be fixed on the surface of the moon and we will probably use either nuclear reactor on the moon or we would use solar power. We got plenty of room on the moon to have a very <laughs> large solar farm there to have multi-megawatts of solar electricity. This is nuclear fusion or fission? It will be nuclear fission first. Eventually, when we learn to do uh, fusion, then the Vasimir essentially becomes a fusion rocket. Not all, no longer an electric rocket driven by external electricity, but it will, it will trigger its own thermonuclear reaction in the plasma itself. Now, that is science fiction for now. <laughs> well, I know the ITER tokamaks being built right now, so yeah. fusion technology seems mm -hmm. like it's getting it's there. Getting it's there. not built yet, not, but not. it's going to be like the first time you actually have net production of, net, yeah. of, of fusion net positive, energy. Yeah. yeah, so do you think that will be like the first step to finally being able to realize? Yes, I think gradually these technologies are going to converge. Now, of course, we were, we're not going to have a tokamak, say, be the plasma rocket. Most likely it will be a mirror-like machine, a linear machine like the Vasimir. But in the plasma itself, what we need to do is to be able to get densities and temperatures like what they would achieve in the tokamak. Mm -hmm. And the tokamak people are going to learn to do that. Mm -hmm. And when they learn, we will be able to apply this knowledge to trigger the reaction in the a plasma jet of the Vasimir, and then we will have a thermonuclear rocket. Huh? What, what, what will be the benefits of that over nuclear the, fission? The, the benefits is just much higher power. Now you're talking not, not tens of um, megawatts, but we're talking about gigawatts. When you have gigawatts of power, the amount of thrust that you're going to get is much higher. So that means that you will go much faster and you will have an artificial gravity. Wow. This, this is the gravity that you really want. The gravity that you get when you step on the gas, you know, when you, <laughs> when you, floor, when you floor your car, you know. That's gravity right there. But it's good gravity because it's the one that's pushing you to go where you want to go, go fast. And so you're going to go halfway there accelerating, then you're going to turn around, and then you're going to decelerate for the other half. But as far as you're concerned, gravity is the same. Mm -hmm. You know, you are not going to know whether you're going to, you're accelerating or decelerating. You're just under gravity. So you would not be weightless at this point? No, you'd be walking around your ship. So you'd simultaneously be faster and overcoming the problems absolutely. of elongated weightlessness. Absolutely. Wow. That's the kind of thing that you really want. Yeah. And you know, that means gigawatts of power, that means a fusion rocket, but we don't know how to do fusion rockets. So what we're going to do is a precursor to fusion, which is a Vasimir engine, learning all the technologies of how to develop and control the plasma, and then when the plasma fusion people learn to do fusion, we will, we will apply that knowledge. <laughs> Brandon will say okay. we're out of time, unfortunately. She's, but thank she's you picking so you much. We really this appreciate it. Well, I enjoyed this. I, I, I never had a chance to really just speak out all, yeah. the, all the 
ins and outs of that uh, that journey. I hope you captured it. That was yes. phenomenal. Thank you. All right. It was a pleasure you to meet guys, you. Thank you so uh, much. Yeah, good one. So much great. To You're going back to Yukon? Is that uh, back to Connecticut? We're here today, tomorrow, and then we're going to fly back Thursday morning. Yeah, so we're really? going to go see Houston a little bit. Are you going to go? Oh, you're going to um, go to the Space Center? You yes. Should, you should go. See yeah, space we're hoping. Yeah. I don't know what we're able to see there, but. Well, you know, I, I, we tell people that you go there to see the past. Yes. You come here to see the future. <laughs> Thank you, everyone, for listening to the podcast. Check out all of our material on iTunes or Spotify. You can check out our social media at InVivoPod for both Twitter and Instagram. And email us with any comments or suggestions at invivo.podcast at gmail.com. I'm your host, Kyle Drake. You can find me on social media at underscore Kyle Drake. The people who make this possible are co-host Victor Kaye. You can find him as well at underscore Victor Kaye. Our editor is the awesome Kevin Ryan. He can be found at The Golden Whammy Bar. And our illustrator is Sarah Demers at underscore, 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 try Sarah Top, underscore, underscore. We'd like to thank our funding from the Office of the Vice President for Research and the Office of the Provost. Thank you very much.